Hello and welcome to another episode of Virtual Legality. I'm your host, Richard Hogue, managing member of the Hogue Law Business Law Firm of Northville, Michigan. And today we are going to talk about a story that we actually did last week. And that story was about Kotaku and their reporting on whether or not the employees at Gearbox had been stiffed of the bonuses that they were promised as part of the Borderlands 3 sales campaign. If you go and look, we've got this video up from April 1st, just about, I guess it's almost two weeks ago uh, today, and it said, sources, despite huge sales, Borderlands 3 developers are getting stiffed on bonuses. Now, this was a Jason Schreier article in Kotaku, and we did a video on it because we took a look at what was said in this article, and we noticed a few, not inconsistencies per se, but a certain one-sidedness in the way that it was reported, and frankly, Looking at the article, we thought we could give a little bit more explanation as to how these meetings generally go with respect to bonuses, how things are generally done. Now, Randy Pitchford and Gearbox have been in the news, have been in lawsuits and litigation all across the board for the last couple years. So we always say it with the caveat of, hey, this could be an unusual circumstance, but it would surprise us if, as this article proclaims, people had been promised certain amounts of money to be received as bonuses that were now being essentially taken back. And the article in Kotaku never once actually claims that there's any hinky accounting, anything that's fraudulent related to this. Just that Randy Pitchford came, gave a meeting to the employees of Gearbox and said, I'm sorry, the projections are lower than I thought they would be. And you're not going to be getting the bonuses that you might otherwise have hoped for. And Jason Trier Kotaku made an article about this and it didn't really pass the smell test for, at bare minimum, kind of getting both sides of the story, right? If you're an investigative journalist and maybe you're doing something more important than video games coverage, but if you are an investigative journalist at all, one of the things that I think is said a lot is that there are two sides to every story and it's probably in your best interest if you want to convey the news properly to folks that you go and you try to get that other side of the story. You can see in the thumbnail to this video that you clicked on to arrive at my talking to you that I think that what has happened over the last couple days is a presentation of that other side of the story. And I want to talk to you about it, not because we need to take that side of the story at face value, but because it is useful to interpreting what we see in the news when we have these discussions. What Folks like Jason Schreier and other people that use Kotaku articles like this to advocate whatever they want to advocate for in respect of the industry or bonus pools or employee benefits or things along those lines, that they should be taking into account this other side of the story as well. And frankly, you know, I'm sitting here getting ready to talk to you about this and talk about this video with you. And one of the things I want to say is it's a little bit frustrating it's not really my job. There should be the ability of people that are interested in these kinds of things in the business of the video game industry, or maybe it's the business of the movie industry or television or technology or medicine, things that are obviously very, very important right now, that these journalists, these stories that we see, we should be able to take not on face value because we're not in the room, but at least on the understanding that they have gone and they have talked to the right people and that we're getting something like a neutral depiction of what has occurred. And that's clearly not happening in Kotaku. And it might be the case that I wind up doing a video or even video series where I wind up talking about not just Kotaku, 
but the various things that are happening in video game journalism that tend towards this end, that we go and we're a journalist in video gaming and we've got a couple contacts at a company, maybe they're disgruntled, maybe they've got an ax to pick, whatever it might be, and they give you this leaked information and you just report that. And it creates a narrative. It creates this kind of headline item that got re-reported. I don't even know how many times that I was discussing it with folks in my social media feeds, talking to them about what was happening, hopefully directing them to my video. And now we can see that at bare minimum, this specific depiction of events as shared in Kotaku is not shared by everyone at Gearbox. And to get to that point, I want to flag a few people that deserve hat tips. I got a hat tip for Lord Cognito and the Iron Lords podcast who flagged me for this story that they put up that says Gearbox Game Director Speaks Out Against Reports About Employee Disappointment. I had another follower on Twitter, Arkham Fantasy, say very similar things, linking me directly to the LinkedIn article. And another person who flagged this for me separately, but tweeted out that the reporting by Kotaku has once again proven to be one-sided and incomplete. There was a lot more to the Gearbox bonus program story. And here's the proof. And this was from Game Over 30. I highly recommend checking out all these folks. I love the Iron Lords podcast. Game Over 30 is constantly talking about business and law, uh, or more specifically business, of video games. And so he is an excellent follow as well. But they all directed me towards this LinkedIn post, which I thought was pretty fascinating. This is a LinkedIn post from Maxime Babin, and I apologize in advance for any mispronunciation there, that is entitled, My View on Gearbox and its Royalty Program. And if you're not familiar with LinkedIn, this is a slightly more professional Facebooky type thing. And the title given for this person is Game Director at Gearbox Studio Quebec. Now, that's an important piece of the story here, that this is the Quebec studio and not the Texas studio where Gearbox was founded and where I think mostly its headquarters and, and primary team lives and makes video games because Quebec was a part of the story that was referenced in the Kotaku article. It says, he said, Pitchford, when explaining the lower bonuses, that the game had been more expensive than expected. The company had grown significantly larger than it had been in the past as it now operates a second studio in Quebec, Canada, and that their sales projections had been off base. So, again, we don't want to just take the other side of the story at face value, just like we don't want the one side to start out with in Kotaku to be taken at face value. One of the things that jumps out at me is, hey, okay, this person works at and is a partial game director of Borderlands 3 at the new studio that Gearbox formed, that now employs this person, that pays their salary, pays whatever bonus that they get, and it is the formation of this studio and all that salary money and all that overhead that is depressing the profitability of Borderlands 3. Now, I think that's capital expense. I think that's going to essentially be amortized across many games, and I think that while Borderlands 3 might be depressed, as long as Gearbox continues to make games that sell well, this will essentially be spread out as a cost over a number of games and where you might have had a lower profitability for a future game, that'll be higher. But that's hard to see. That's all projections. That's speculation. But it's worth noting that this person, when we look at this commentary, has this job as a part of the cost side of the balance sheet for Borderlands 3. That, to me, is what I mean by saying, hey, you got to take all sides of the story. You got to discuss what the context is of the people speaking. 
And yes, what is said here lines up better with my kind of intuitive understanding, having worked at large businesses, having sat in on meetings where profitability and profit sharing are explained, having advised clients about what to say to their employees when their stock ownership plan or their profit plan doesn't quite net out to what they would otherwise have liked to give their employees. So this matches more with my understanding of the world, but that makes it more dangerous, right? If I were a journalist at Kotaku, I would say, okay, that matches up with what I think is happening. I got to be more cautious and I got to go and solicit those people that Kotaku found on the other side so that we can have a good article, a good story about these things, because that's, that's how you find out the truth. That's how you get a good whole understanding of what's happening at a massive company like Gearbox that has a lot of different people with a lot of different perspectives. But I think this is an important perspective to share. So let's go over it. It says, my name is Max Babin, and I have been in the industry for over 10 years, working for both small indie studios and big AAA companies. From my experience, there is no royalty system as transparent, mathematical, and objective as the one that the Gearbox founders decided to implement. I think what is labeled there is very important. Transparency and objectivity is really, if I were sitting in the room as an employee of one of these studios or anywhere else, that's what I would want to see out of my profit sharing plan. Because once you kind of have a black box system implemented on top of that, everything is lost, right? If you just have your executives, your management, go into a room, decide on everything, and then come out with a number to give you, that is not as useful to you as here's our top line numbers, here's our costs, you're going to get seven points out of 100 in a profit sharing plan, and here's what that number winds up being. And they can establish it for you the entire way. That is very, very important, very useful, as long as you aren't accusing them of accounting fraud, which isn't a part of the Kotaku article, and so I don't think is a part of what's happening here at Gearbox. That transparency, that objectivity, that math is important and useful if you want to believe that what you get as a bonus is something that is quote-unquote fair, or at least something that you agreed to before you started work. It is a system designed for people to reap the rewards of the entire studio's success, independent from your position, project, or how in favor you are with leadership. There's no black box. There's not supposed to be office politics that are involved in this, and I think that is, in fact, a good thing. So here's what's wrong with what has been recently reported. Being transparent with numbers doesn't make them a promise. So that was one of the things that really flagged this article originally for me, was that Kotaku started articulating that these employees felt that they had been promised this borderlands money. And one of the things that I said is that it would surprise the heck out of me. Even if you assume that Randy Pitchford and the Gearbox management are characters and they're always up to no good, whatever you want to ascribe in your head to these people, it would surprise the heck out of me that they would make contractual promises to their employees based on the speculation of future profits. Because unless you are an actual idiot, you don't make those promises because you don't know what money is going to come in for any specific project. And Gearbox, remember, is coming right off the heels of Battleborn, which, yes, I will admit to liking, and in fact, I loved that game, as a, a game player, but which made them no money and was shut down almost as soon as it was released. And so Gearbox is... When they are making Borderlands 3, when they are projecting these kinds of things, when they are sharing these meetings with their employees, they are fully aware of the fact that a game that they spend significant resources on and that they release could utterly flop. 
Now, it was pretty unlikely that something that is the third in a very popular series like Borderlands 3 was would flop, but still, it would be very odd to make quote-unquote promises. But as I said in that prior video, that doesn't mean that people in the room don't hear promises. There are people that will take what you say about Borderlands 2 and say, oh my gosh, that was house money. I'm going to have maybe money to buy a house from Borderlands 3. That's going to be great. And they start mentally spending it already. And if you're good management, if you're really focused on this, you are trying to limit that. You are trying to set expectations lower. So hopefully you can beat them when that money comes out. And instead, I think if you're going to accuse Gearbox or Randy Pitchford of something, it seems like, at least for a certain subsection of the people at Gearbox, they let their minds run wild with the possibilities of profit sharing on Borderlands 3. And this is what they are sowing from allowing that. Regardless of how you feel about what actually happened at Gearbox, the fact that six people appear to have leaked information to Jason Schreier at Kotaku about their being upset does suggest a certain fundamental issue with at least certain portions of the employees at Gearbox. That really can't be argued against. If you've got this contingent inside your close corporation, your small house, and they are deciding to leak directly to an investigative journalist who was always going to make an article like this based on those leaks, then you do have some fundamental morale problem, a faith problem. There are folks at your company that don't believe in management, and that's an issue. But it doesn't necessarily mean that that issue is fully warranted. People don't have to be acting rationally on these kinds of things. They just have to have heard that something was promised. They just have to have started mentally spending that money. We all knew it was a killer project and were super excited to see how the fans would respond to it. There were company-wide meetings where various earning projections would be displayed. These projections were displayed as an act of transparency and never made it into any promises. Be cool. Now, there's a couple things I want to note here. First, what appears to have happened is that they had company-wide meetings, potentially financial projection documents that went out to folks that maybe aren't necessarily in the business of reading financial projection documents. And yeah, it's useful if you are Gearbox and you want people to really be focused and maintain a work environment that you say, hey, this is what Borderlands 2 made. And if we had the same amount of sales on Borderlands 3, or if we project a 10% increase because the market size has increased, here's the money that you could potentially be getting. And these are all things that are useful. And if you want to accuse Gearbox of acting badly on these kinds of things, you can. On the other side of the spectrum, though, you do have this kind of component, which is it is useful to see what management is working off of. If you don't think they are defrauding you, if you don't think they are lying, and not even in the Kotaku article from the six disgruntled employees, did you get notions that they were deliberately kind of falsifying the projections? It's really a matter of management being optimistic and not hitting those projections, which I don't think is ideal. I don't think that Randy Pitchford or management at Gearbox in general would have had that come out, uh, would have had that come out in terms of actually happening. They would have rather hit a number that was higher than what they projected and make everybody happy and make everybody thrilled to work there. But that didn't happen. And the question always is, do you want that information or don't you? One of the things I like to talk to people about is, if you want that truthful information, if you want transparency, whether it's from management, whether it's from a sports figure you like, talking to a reporter, one of the things you have to come to accept is that that transparency means that real human beings will make mistakes, will say things that you don't like. And to some extent, I think you have to accept that. You have to get used to it. 
if you want those honest answers. Because the alternative is, okay, we're not going to share those things because we get in trouble, because we get articles leaked to Kotaku. If you're a sports figure, you say nothing but, oh, the coach asked us to play hard. It was a tough game. We're always looking for the next one. Every day is the next day. Type answers that don't help anyone, that don't make you understand what this person is all about any better. And that's all because they got burned for saying something honestly. And we're seeing that more and more in the social media landscape. We might see that here. We might see Gearbox change its entire policy and procedure. Say, all right, if this is going to be an issue, we're not going to share any projections with you. You guys can just guess as to what your money will be. And if you wind up with a $10,000 check, you'll be thrilled because you had no idea and you should be assuming that it's zero. I don't think that's better for anybody else. But being this transparent, putting projections out there, putting financial statements out there assumes that people are going to treat them as projections, as speculative, and not say, oh, leak their disgruntledness to Kotaku because the numbers that they got as bonuses aren't what they expected them to be. Continuing, he says, we already got royalties. And Kotaku actually said that. They actually described them as small royalties. And more are coming. We have not got stiffed by anyone. And again, that points out what I said in my earlier video, which is that getting stiffed implies that something has been fully withheld, that it has been withheld wrongly, that something was stolen. And that doesn't appear to be what was even accused of in this particular case. They say there was an expectation gap, and that seems evident. But Borderlands 3 is profitable, and we already are seeing the result of it. Royalties are flowing already, and more are coming. I have a huge amount of respect for Randy that he had to face the disappointment of his friends and colleagues when he announced that the projections were too high. He could have pushed it off to someone in the studio, but he didn't. It was a display of trust and honesty, and it sucks that someone would try to spin it into something it isn't. Six someones, as a matter of fact. It is particularly painful to have to discuss this at a time when millions of people outside the video game industry are struggling financially. Now, there's some wordsmithing there, right? There was an expectation gap, is management speak. It, there certainly is an expectation gap, but this starts to sound much like a management kind of explanation for what happened. Now, in blue, I've highlighted the fact that Randy actually telling the employees this is a big deal to this particular person. And I think it is, except that certainly the expectation would be that the CEO is delivering these kinds of messages, especially if the CEO was the one behind delivering the initial projection messages. And so, yes, I think it's a good thing that they didn't go and hide for a statement like this, but I don't think it's necessarily something that needs to be lauded very much. It is what I would expect from a decent CEO. It was a display of trust and honesty, sure. You don't have to go and take the slings and arrows if you're the CEO, if you're the big money man, if you're rich. But it is good that they did that. But this starts to sound a little bit like management talking. And as a matter of fact, I wanted to highlight in the previous bullet point that that last line, be cool, is not directed really at Kotaku readers, is not directed at you or me. That is directed at employees at Gearbox, right? These projections were displayed as an act of transparency. You got this information because they wanted you to have more information to understand what the profit sharing plan would be. Be cool. Don't take it as promises. Don't take it as sacrosanct. Don't leak your unhappiness to places like Kotaku. Be cool. It's not for us. And so you start to see that this is very much someone that is in the upper echelons of Gearbox, or at bare minimum, believes in the upper echelons of Gearbox. We all benefit from Gearbox success. 
A few months ago, Randy decided to give away 30% of his company to the employees because he believes that those who participate should get a piece of the returns. I'm honestly surprised that this isn't what is making the news right now. This is huge. In addition to this formula-based royalty system, we are now part owners of the company. Now, this was interesting to me. I couldn't find anything else about this particular bullet or news item. Now, one of the reasons for that is that Gearbox is not a publicly traded company. Gearbox is a close corporation, meaning that it's held by specific people that either initially founded the company or that the company has given shares to, usually as service providers to the company, employees, potentially contractors, those kinds of folks, investors. And so they have a direct relation to Gearbox. There is no secondary market for its shares, which means because there is no secondary market, Gearbox doesn't have to publicly share information about how it operates. A public company that's traded on the NASDAQ or the stock exchange has to issue by federal government law certain reports on a quarterly and annual basis that show certain things about what's happening on the internal governance side of the company. Gearbox doesn't have to do that. So this came as a bit of a surprise, and I think it's interesting. We have no reason to believe that this person is lying about that. However, in all likelihood, this isn't Randy Pitchford taking 30% of his shares and just giving them out to his employees. In all likelihood, this is what we would call an employee stock ownership plan or ESOP. And an ESOP is something that is useful. It is very useful in incentivizing employees in very specific circumstances, but it's also useful to the company and potentially the founders. It says here on an article from NCEO, the National Center for Employee Ownership. So again, <laughs> Take that with a grain of salt as to what we are talking about here. Employee ownership can be accomplished in a variety of ways. Employees can buy stock directly, be given it as a bonus, can receive stock options, or obtain stock through a profit-sharing plan. Now, the profit-sharing plan we have been discussing is a uh, essentially a royalty or gross revenue-based profit-sharing plan in which the money coming in for a project like Borderlands 3 is shared amongst the company at, I believe, the 60% level and the employees at a 40% level. That can be done by contract. That's not really talking about the share ownership in the company. It says, but by far the most common form of employee ownership in the U.S. is the ESOP or Employee Stock Ownership Plan. An ESOP is a kind of employee benefit plan similar in some ways to a profit sharing plan. In an ESOP, a company sets up a trust fund into which it contributes new shares of its own stock or cash to buy existing shares. So that's one of the fun things about capitalizing a company, right? Is you say, oh, you've given away 30% of the company for things that aren't share-based. That would mean somebody had to give away 30% to somebody else. Here, the company is actually authorized to issue new shares, which is just a function of mathematics. So if you had 70 shares, we're going to use simple numbers here. If you had 70 shares outstanding and Randy Pitchford held a certain amount, and his co-partners held the rest, if the company decided to then issue 30 new shares just to an ESOP or to just a new person, then the resulting capitalization of the company would be the 70 that used to be 100% are now 70%, and the 30 that have been recently issued are 30% of the company. 70 plus 30 is 100, and 70 is 70%, and 30 is 30%. So you didn't actually have to take anything away directly from the people that hold the 70 shares, the company just issued 30 new shares. And that would be, quote unquote, giving away 30% of the company. We would call it in the law or in business dilution. That 100% interest that those prior folks held in the company has been diluted down to 70% by issuance of new stock directly out of the company. Now, I don't know that that's what's happened here, 
But when people talk about these kinds of things, when you get a reference to has given away 30% of his company, people don't talk in real life like lawyers talk about these things. And that's right down to really sophisticated clients that are talking about specifically enacting things like this. They will talk about giving away 30% of their company. We want employees to have 30% of the company. They won't talk about the mechanics of how that is done. But my bet is that what we're looking at is that Gearbox has established an ESOP, an employee stock ownership plan, and there are reasons for that, right? In, in an ESOP, they set up that trust fund or the ESOP can borrow money and can get advantageous terms on that borrowed money, which could be useful depending on what Gearbox's financial situation is. And regardless of how the plan acquires its stock, company contributions to the trust are tax deductible with certain accounting limits. So without getting into the nitty gritty, the the detail orientedness of all this, there are reasons. If you want to view Gearbox or Randy Pitchford or anyone else associated with actually operating this company as the devil, if you want to just ascribe to them negative motivations, there are reasons, there are tax incentives, and there are financial structuring purposes to setting up an ESOP and to having a company contribute either 30% of the stock of a fully diluted version of the company into that ESOP to have the ESOP borrow money to buy stock from other people, potentially founders, to get them uh, unliquidated out of their interest in the company, that there are reasons to believe that this was done not for solely the benefit of the employees. But that, to me, is, again, seeing only one side of the story, because even in that circumstance, the fact remains that employees do wind up owning more of the company. They wind up having more skin in the game as to how the company winds up proceeding. And so that is a fairly significant news item that an ESOP has been set up. It might be a significant news item because one of the founders wants to leave. It might be a significant news item because the company wants to borrow a lot of money and wants to expand or has financial difficulties or other things that really should be reported on by somebody that has these contacts. And that's what I would love to see out of the Kotaku's of the world. I've said this in the comments to my videos, but I like Jason Schreier's reporting. He's good at teasing out these facts from various people, but he never goes far enough. And he winds up making stories like this that say developers are getting stiffed on bonuses. Maybe, but you've got six people here that give you that story. And then if you go and you looked at this LinkedIn article that ends with essentially saying, I understand that honesty and transparency can bring misunderstanding, but these values are core to Gearbox's vision. And I want to share my deepest appreciation for Gearbox. And then you have not six, but in fact, seven employees wind up, at least claimed employees wind up coming in and saying, I agree. Couldn't have put this in better words, my friend. From my perspective, this is both honest and true. I also concur. Thank you for saying out loud what most employees at Gearbox think. What you've got here is not a monolithic, unilateral opinion of what just happened at Gearbox with respect to royalties. And for my money, that is a more interesting story than it was shocking to employees at Gearbox, the developer of the game, when they told when they would not receive the significant royalty bonuses they expected. Employees at a company the size of Gearbox were never going to have a unilateral response to this kind of news. So tell the whole story. That is interesting. That is important to understanding what is happening, not just at this company, but companies across the industry. Kotaku, you can do better. I know you can. And I would love to see that. Jason Schreier, you have these contacts. If you want to talk about these issues, I would be happy to have you on virtual legality. Let's talk about these issues. Let's make sure that people can get a good understanding of these things. 
And not just related to the headline item, which we know people are going to share without reading the article, but the ultimate body of the article can have so much more nuance. Or perhaps you see an article like this one from Max Babin, who we know is at least the creative director of Borderlands 3 DLC number two, was a little bit unclear as to what he was creative director on Borderlands 3 for any other purpose, because like I said, it's not that easy to see what's happening inside a close corporation. And so he might've been the creative director of more, including more DLC, might've been the creative director for the whole game. It was very difficult to kind of suss out, but he is a legitimate person. He does work in Quebec and that's an important part of the story, but you could report it as the other side of the story, or maybe you could just report it very much like Kotaku did. Here we've got a Game Rant article that says Gearbox studio director tries to do damage control for Randy Pitchford. Yeah. Okay. Well, as I said in the LinkedIn post, a lot of it comes off sounding like it's management. This person is a game director. This person is someone that was given some kind of break by Randy Pitchford and the higher management at Gearbox. And so there is going to be a certain kind of skew towards defending the Gearbox policies because he has that high-level job. This might be what he's always wanted to do with his life, etc., etc. And that's worth discussing, just like it's worth discussing that the six people that responded to Kotaku are clearly disgruntled employees. All of this is worth discussing. I'm not trying to dismiss the tilt of anyone involved. I'm trying to say if you put the tilt out there and you get both sides of the story, you get more information and you get more truth. And frankly, this headline doesn't get there, right? Tries to do damage control, essentially assumes the accuracy of the Kotaku article is sacrosanct as the only truth on the Gearbox story and that this guy is just lying to cover his own butt. And to me, hey, maybe that's the way that you want to see the world and more power to you. To me, I've found in my experience, the world is a lot more nuanced and frankly, a lot more interesting when you dive into both sides. This has been Virtual Legality for today. If you like this video, we're talking about these kinds of things all the time. Please check out the rest of our content. We just talked about the ESA essentially canceling even digital E3 and not being able to get their publishers to even contribute digital marketing materials to them. We've talked about Supreme Court cases. Hey, we've even talked a little politics as we discussed exactly how Wisconsin was handling the outbreak and their specific voting criteria. We do have a lot of fun in this channel. Please share it around. Please share it on NeoGAF and Reset Era and Reddit and wherever else you might find yourself because we love having these conversations. And frankly, the YouTube kind of transparency that we like to see from places like your box just isn't there. We're down on basically all of our metrics. We don't know exactly why. So we would really appreciate it if you could help us out with comments, likes, subscribes, maybe even dislikes if you didn't like what we had to say. We would appreciate it all the same. If you caught it on YouTube, thank you so much for watching. And if you listen to it in its podcast form, thank you so much for listening. And if you could please review it on whatever platform you listen to it on, I would appreciate that as well. Thank you. And I will catch you on the very next episode of Virtual Legality. Virtual Legality is a YouTube video series with audio podcast versions presented as commentary and for education and entertainment purposes only. It does not constitute legal advice and does not create an attorney-client relationship. If you have legal questions about the topics discussed, please consult your own legal counsel.